right, if you have a Bible, please open up to the book of Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. In fact, I'll encourage you through this entire series throughout the year. Uh, this is the year to follow along in your Bible because we won't be skipping around a lot. We'll just be walking verse for verse through stuff. It works out really good that way. It's an easy way to keep up. Now, as you're on your way to Acts chapter 19, we're going to start in about verse 23 this morning. But before we get there, I want to just rewind just for a minute to last week. And, and I do that because I want to make sure that you understand the continuity of what we're dealing with and really the heart behind what Paul was up to. Now, when we started last week, this whole series, we contested for this truth that the reason Jesus came into the world and gave himself on the cross was to create and establish the church. That the cross was a tool, right? It was the, the, this instrument designed to remove our sin and make us holy in God's sight. But doing that, the goal was to create the church, which is the body of Christ, right? It's this entity, this organization that is filled with people, changed by Jesus, and from that, we're a bunch of hell crashers. I love that the church is hell crashers. That is our label. We crash hell with joy, loaded up with skirt guns, going after. That's the church. And we should be thrilled that that is our calling. What that means then is that part of that calling, if the goal was the church, part of the calling then of the church is to continue with that goal and to see other churches established, other churches planted, to see that continued gate crashing of hell stuff go forward, right? That's the whole motivation behind the church. And as Redemption Church, we take that seriously. We see that part of the fabric of being the church is making sure the church multiplies. And we do that in a variety of ways. We have an internship program designed to train pastors, and we have seen men go out from our church that are pastoring in local churches, and that's one aspect. Another aspect where we help facilitate things is we have a partnership church in Arizona. Hello, New Hope in Arizona, down there in central Arizona. Uh, some of you know of that, some of you don't, but it's a partnership church, and they use all of our videos on Sunday morning to teach in that environment. And they're sharing the gospel in central Arizona and just doing great stuff there. So we get to be a part of that. But another thing we do is we send out people to actually plant churches, right? That that is their goal and that is their motivation. And one of the... Uh, Teams that we have uh, seen sent out from redemption uh, has been asking God, like, God, where do you want us to plant? And how do you want us to do that? And what's it going to look like? And this week, uh, God, by his grace, really showed them this is where you're going. So we have a picture right now. This is Andrew and Amberlynn Clausen. They've got three adorable little kids. And, uh, you know, God's been doing some great things with them in Indonesia. And they've been trying to figure out, again, where does God want us to plant a church? And finally, this week, it's like the Holy Spirit has said, this is the place. This is the village. That is the picture you see up on the screen right there. That is the place where they are going to start a church. Now, there's a lot of things they have to do in that process. They have to learn the language and learn the context of what they're going to be doing. But this is the place where God has prepared for a church to be planted. And it was great because Andrew had an email this week. And he was talking about going into this, this village, and, and he had a translator with him. And the translator was sharing kind of Andrew's heart to one of the young men in the village. And, and he told the young man, he says, yes, we're, we're Christians, uh, I'm a pastor, we're here to start a church in your village and teach you about God. And this young man replied to Andrew, he said, good, we are thirsty, we are thirsty for it. 
And I love that because sometimes we think, you know, this is just a human endeavor. And that we're doing one side of the equation. We forget how the Holy Spirit's working in the other side of the equation too. Preparing hearts, getting people ready for His Word to come and bring transformation. That is the essence of why we plant churches. It is why the church at large is a missional church designed to plant. It is the heritage of the church. We bring the gospel so that little groups of people will come together and be the church of Jesus to that culture, to that tribe, to that city, to that wherever it is planted. That is the heart. And that was the heart of the Apostle Paul, right? Here's this guy, radically opposed to Christianity, hated the church, hated Jesus. And then Jesus, in His grace, grabs a hold of his life and says, it's all going to be different. Your name used to be Saul, which was the tallest, mightiest, strongest king of Israel. But now you are Paul, which literally means small. I will make you from big to small, and in your smallness, I will use you for big things. And so Paul, once a hater of the church, once a persecutor of the church, becomes a planter of churches. He starts to go throughout the known world, plants churches, Lystra, Derbe, Philippi, Athens, Corinth, Thessalonica, planting, planting, planting. He goes into every city and he drives a seed into the ground, the soil of the culture, praying and hoping that the gospel takes root and from that a church is born that will change lives. That's his heart. So he would come in and he would preach the word that shows the way to bring the worship. Right? And that was always the thing. Preach the word, show the way. So that there would be the worship. That was his heart. And so Paul enters Ephesus. And for three years, he works and he shares. And he becomes discouraged. And he's opposed. And he's worn thin. He says he fights the wild beasts at Ephesus. People that just wanted to make his life bad. He deals with deep depression. You see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where he says, literally, I was so depressed, I wanted to die. That's how hard and grueling the church plant of Ephesus was. But he stays faithful. He just keeps stashing the tender throughout the city, right? Preaching, sharing, little word here, little word there. People are carrying the word all throughout the city, all throughout the region. He just keeps it up. He just keeps being faithful. Praying that one day, perhaps, the Holy Spirit will light that fire and people will be just taken off for Jesus, right? That's what he's praying and hoping and working toward. And then finally, revival. Finally, there is this day where everything grabs hold in a way that he never would have anticipated. He wouldn't have written the story that way. But people, man, they are ignited. And they say, we don't want our idols anymore. We don't want our magic anymore. We don't want our perversion anymore. We want to be different. We want to see the one true God. We want to worship the one true God. We want to let go of old things and bring on new things. We want to let go of darkness. We want to embrace light. That is the whole heart of the revival. So, man, hundreds, maybe even thousands of people become transformed. Hundreds, maybe thousands of people literally start burning millions of dollars of their old way of life, not because it's some kind of weird censorship, but because it's heartfelt worship. We're done with the old life. We want the new life. 
That is how the church of Ephesus begins. And so it closes out with that scene in Acts 19, verse 20, by saying the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I mean, I love the strength of that. I love that idea of why we call this series Clash, right? Because it is more than conquering. It is prevailing. It is growing with enthusiasm and strength and might and power. Christianity is not a sissy faith. It is a powerful, overcoming, hell-crushing faith. And Paul gets to see it underway. Now, that doesn't come easy. That doesn't come because we stay comfortable. That doesn't come because we play it safe. That doesn't come because we're half in. It doesn't come by putting a toe in the water. It comes when you say, this is what matters. This is the goal. And that is Paul's heart. This is the goal. The word of the way that leads to worship. So literally, he's seeing a city just changed. He's seeing a church planted for the glory of Jesus. And you got to imagine, if you're in Paul's sandals, that must have been a pretty cool scene. I mean, after agonizing so much for so long to see change, to see somebody respond, man, that had to just be overwhelming, a huge encouragement. And it came, this change, this cultural change, the salvation and transformation came not because there was protests, Not because there was pickets, not because there was petitions, but because the Spirit brought persuasion. Because the Word comes with power. And because the Apostle lived his life with passion. And God leveraged every bit of that. Now here's the thing. When you see God on the move, When you see Jesus reclaiming people unto Himself, when you see the Holy Spirit igniting the hearts of individuals, when you see the church begin to thrive and to grow and for the Word of God to prevail mightily, guess what? You see opposition. You will always see opposition. When demon-fueled idolaters become spirit-filled identifiers with Jesus, hell fights back. Hell fights back in vicious form. Hell fights back without playing by any rules. Hell just fights back. Because again, hell knows if this gets too far underway, it's a fire that just spreads. And there will be opposition. In fact, starting in verse 23 of Acts 19, it says about that time, right? Word is prevailing mightily. The church is expanding rapidly. People are getting saved in a very powerful way. And so Paul's thinking about, I've got to move on. I've got to make sure the other churches are doing well. And so right at about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. See, the way is always the disturber. Because the way means something very particular. The way is where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The way is the narrow way, as Jesus said, if you find it. The way is where Jesus said, there is only one way to God. That is by me. See, as soon as you start to proclaim that, it causes trouble. Why? Because it's very narrow. It's very close-minded. It's very elitist. Oh, really? You're saying you're the only way. You're saying that our gods are not another way. You're saying that other systems are not another way. You're so proud as to say your way is the right way. See, as soon as you say, hey, this is the only way, 
Jesus is the only route. He's the only solution. The cross is the only door. The resurrection of Jesus is the only door to God. As soon as you do that, it causes trouble, right? Because people go, wait, wait a minute. Now you're on my turf about things I care about. And you're saying, I'm wrong and you're right. And man, it has nothing to do with us being right. It is only by the grace of God. It's only by the grace of God that we even understand. But this is what Paul has been preaching. The apostle has preached the way. And so now there's going to be an anti-apostle. And he's going to preach against the way. He's going to preach a different way. He's going to preach a very broad way. And his name is Demetrius. It says there was a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis and brought no little business to the craftsmen. And so here's this guy. He's probably the head of the, the silversmith union. He's there during the festival of Artemis. He sees all these guys that build these little shrines and little trinkets for the, the goddess of the city. Uh, and their, their stands are just lying dormant. Right? Because now upwards of thousands of people have embraced Jesus and they've burned all that stuff. And they say, we don't worship Artemis anymore. We don't do what she wants us to do. We've given that up for this one true God, Jesus. We're not buying in anymore. And so he's looking at all of this and going, oh, this is a problem. This is affecting what I hold dear. This is affecting my way of life. And so what, in essence, he sees is an effective church. And when the enemy sees an effective church, you will then see a fought church. It just always flows. It's a little bit like what we talked about last week. If I say, hey man, I want to follow Jesus. I want the cross. I want heaven. I want that assuredness. And I want to throw on the Jesus jersey, but I'm going to ride pine, not be in the game, not put points on the board, don't want to get dinked up, just want to sit here with my cool little jersey. You know what? The enemy's going to do nothing. He's going to say, that's awesome. Just keep riding the bench. That's a really safe place. You'll want to stay there. That way you can say you're on the team and you can feel really good about yourself. But as soon as the church gets in the game, Churches, as soon as the church says, you know what, we really want to push back the gates of hell. We really want to share the good news. We really want to see lives change. We don't want to be quiet. We don't want to be afraid. We want to be bold. As soon as we do that, the enemy goes, Woo-hoo, wait a minute. You're an effective church. And so you will be a fought church. And that's where the clash begins. Right? Demetrius sees this whole thing coming down. He sees what's going on. And so it says in verse 25, he gathered the craftsmen together, right? Everybody that builds this stuff sells these items. He brings together the craftsmen with the workmen in similar trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul, this Paul, has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. So go back to last week. right? The demons are like, we know Paul. We're aware of Paul. He's, he's doing stuff that's driving us away. Now the instruments of the enemy are seeing the same stuff. Oh, we know Paul too. This guy, he's having an effect. And when idols feel attacked, idols push back. And notice what gets stimulated with these people in this scene. The enemy stimulates their deepest fears and their familiar assumptions. Their income and their idols. 
See, as soon as you threaten somebody's income, they get really, really worried. And they'll, they'll revolt. They'll attack. And when you threaten their idols, those things that they get the greatest fear from or they have the greatest dread regarding, those things that fill them up or empty them based on whether they have them or they don't have them, as soon as you deal with that, there's retaliation. And, and you still see the same thing today. Right? When our idols are challenged. I have idols in my own life. I'm a Christian and I'm ashamed and confess before you that there's still times where I have idols, where there's things that I hold so dear that I go, man, if I lose that, I will be crushed. If I have that, I'll be full. That becomes an idol for me a lot of times. And so we all have idols. And sometimes when the idols are challenged, when they're called out, when they're defined as what they are, idols, man, they revolt inside of us. When our idols regarding sex or money or power or hobby or sports or whatever it is, entertainment, you name the idol, that thing we have deep affection for and we must have when those are challenged, they fight back. Because they're fighting for the affection of the worshiper to worship them again. And so they look at Paul and they go, man, this guy's attacking our idols. And not just verbally, it wasn't just like some speech that Paul gave and now they're upset because of what he said. No, there is, there is real change behind this. Paul is affecting the economy of the region with his message. The entire identity of the culture is beginning to shift. And it puts these guys in a place of great worry and concern. And it has a lot of impact because imagine, take it to our culture for a minute. Just imagine, try to capture, if there was a widespread revival in the United States, where literally we started to see millions of people, large numbers of people, coming to Christ with the same fervor as the people of Ephesus. Coming to Christ so excited, so passionate, so wanting to be used by God, that people started saying, hey man, just burn that, get rid of that, I'm done with that, I'm finished, I'm not doing it anymore. Imagine the collateral impact that would have on our culture. Imagine all of the people that suddenly would become jobless quickly. Because we forget how much our culture, the infrastructure of our culture, is built on our own sinful problems. For example, just imagine widespread revival in all the various cities of the United States. And those Christians are taking their faith so seriously, they're living what the Bible says. Pretty soon, you're going to have lawyers going, we, uh, we can't find anybody to sue. Because nobody wants to sue each other. They're all starting to get along. There's no ambulances I can chase because that, or that's the only thing. Everybody's doing it. There, there, there's not enough lawsuits. Lawyers would be suffering. Ad agencies, what would they do? Right? They're predicated on, you know what, you're not happy, you want to be happy, buy this product. Now they're going to be like, we know you're happy, but this is cool, you know. Style would change. They'd have to rework all of that. Product placement would change. All of that would change. 24-hour news would go back to 30 minutes. Thank you. Right? Because there just wouldn't be all the stuff that they got to make up to make as news. Law enforcement would be radically challenged. You'd need less cops. Less prisons, less infrastructure of that. Home protection would be totally different. We'd all leave our houses unlocked. Locksmiths would be like, dude, there's no work. It would all change. Hollywood, what would Hollywood do? All new scripts. Kirk Cameron would be the number one actor. That's what would happen. 
Shout out to Steve Mount for that one. That was all his, right? The pornography industry dry up. Psychics, mediums, the new age, they'd all have 800 numbers that nobody calls. Right? It would all begin to change. Best part, cats would be released into the wild. They wouldn't be domestic anymore. As God intended, mass conversion. Right? Idols would be let go of. But, when idols are let go of, and when people aren't getting behind all of that, culture retaliates. In fact, you go back to the 19th century in England, uh, there was this uh, very passionate gospel ministry that really descended on England and saw some real wide-sweeping revival. It was this little group called the Salvation Army. Right? And they started just preaching the gospel. And people were getting saved all over the place in England. And then pretty soon, guess what happens? Opposition. Literally, there was a group called the Skeleton Army that rose up against the Salvation Army began publishing all kinds of literature against the Salvation Army, accusing them of all sorts of underhanded things. And the Skeleton Army was mainly funded by the brothel owners, the pub owners, and politicians who you know visited first two, right? And so they just pressed on the Salvation Army, trying to shut them down. Why? Because an effective church is a fought church. And that's going to be true with redemption. I mean, honestly, you know, as we've opened up seats and we've gone to two services and we've said, God, come and be among your people. Do great and mighty things. We don't want to be ashamed or afraid or quiet. We want to take the city in your name. When you do that, and if it becomes effective, you will see a fought church. The enemy will fight you in your homes. He will fight your marriages. He will fight you and your kids and parenting. He will fight you on the economy in your home. He will fight you in this church at large. He will try to create division, strife, and strain. He will. Because he'll say, no, 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 no. I don't want that. Don't let that fire get lit. Don't let that church get off the bench. Because that'll change everything. And so he resists. And that's what he's doing in Ephesus. Paul's going to tell us later in Ephesians chapter 6, hey man, our enemy isn't flesh and blood. Paul knows that ultimately his enemy is not Demetrius or the craftsman. He knows it's Satan who's blinded the eyes of those who don't believe and they do what they do. But Demetrius, as an instrument of the enemy, is on the move. He says in verse 27, he says, because of this, Paul... He says, there is this danger, not only everything that we see, not only our livelihood and everything else, but there is this danger that this trade of ours may become into disrepute. It may fall to this uh, status of, you guys are make-believers. See, in one sense, it's true, man. They make money at this, right? And his concern is that everybody will look at us and, and, and not say, hey, you guys are useful to the religion of our culture, but rather they'll look and say, you guys are frauds. You guys are just charlatans, just ripping us off for cash. Now, I want you to understand the artisans, the craftsmen of idols, they believed in these gods. It wasn't just purely economy. It wasn't purely trinkets. It wasn't like pet rocks or whatever. I mean, it was real stuff to them. And they would have been seen as high esteem individuals within Ephesus. But now, oh, now the reputation's at stake. And so they're looking at this, Demetrius in particular, and says, okay, so here's the deal, you guys. 
If you just look at this, Paul has assaulted our income, our idols, and now our personal value. I mean, that's what this guy's bringing up. This is not only that, but the temple of the great goddess Artemis, it may be counted as nothing. This man comes in with good news, this Paul, this apostle of this Jesus, and he challenges the very foundations of our city. To believe in Artemis was patriotic. To believe in Artemis was to celebrate the strength and power of your city. Tied to that, the temple of Artemis was also the banking center of Ephesus. So their prosperity is tethered to this patriotic temple. And so you start to build the indictment. Paul attacks our income, our idols, our value, our patriotism, and our prosperity. Is ultimately, he even assaults our legacy. He says, man, she might even be disposed of her magnificence, whom all Asia and the world worships. He says, imagine that, imagine that that legacy that we have, this one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world would be reduced to nothing, just an empty shell that has no significance or spiritual value whatsoever. So again, Paul goes after everything. Income, idols, value, patriotism, prosperity, and legacy. Nothing is untouched in the mind of Demetrius. I mean, this is why he's so worked up. And from that, everybody else gets worked up. Verse 28. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They just kept saying it over and over and over. Artemis is great. Artemis is great. Our city is great. Paul doesn't know what he's doing. Our Artemis is great. See, for Demetrius here, this is a God, mom, apple pie, and country speech. That's what it is. So we might not look at it that because we go, well, no, man, this guy believed in an idol. We don't believe in idols, so we don't feel the passion they felt. But think about the passion you feel once every four years when the election rolls around. I mean, just it doesn't even matter what side you're on. Both sides get very, very passionate, right? Because they start looking and they go, well, that other side is risking my legacy, risking our prosperity, risking our patriotism. And when we start to feel that way, we get visceral and really agitated and frustrated. We go, man, they don't even know what they're doing. They're nuts. Well, that's how these guys feel. Right? So they're very, very aggressive. And so they have their patriotic battle cry. Artemis, 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 Artemis. And they're working themselves into a frenzy. And so it says in verse 29, the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater. So the city is about 250,000 people. The theater holds about 25,000 people. So we could at least guess that somewhere between 5 and 10% of the actual populace within a, the span of about an hour and a half to two hours has rallied together, rushed into the theater angry. It's just an angry mob, right? It's this union group of dock workers mad. Right? That's what they are. It's a harbor city. These guys are used to that. They're union guys. They are angry. And so they drag with them some of Paul's associates. Guys that have been faithful with Paul to preach the gospel, to bring it to various cities. And now they're here and they can't get the main culprit. Paul is the guy they want to grab. Paul's not around. So they grab these guys instead. Because it's guilt by association. If you're with Paul, you're to blame. 
And I know what guilt by association is, man. Sometimes I'm, I'm around Duval, and I'll, I'll, I'll meet somebody. And they don't know who I am exactly, but we'll start talking, and I'll say, yeah, I go to Redemption Church. And I get one or two responses. It's like, oh, that's awesome. Or I get, oh, that church. Right? And they don't even know I'm the pastor, which is great. And uh, it's like, you know, and, and you see, it's like guilt by association. Or, oh, that's really cool. It's like awesome by association. In fact, even a couple of weeks ago, I was at my kid's school, and this guy looked at me and goes, are you related to the pastor of Redemption Church? So I said, yeah, he's my brother. Why? Because I figured that's a good way to find out what he really thinks of me, you know, and I'm kidding, I'm the guy, you know, but guilt by association sometimes, right? You don't know what you're getting into. And these guys have guilt by association. And it's a bloodthirsty crowd, right? Highly volatile. In fact, that's the weird thing. Like, as a mob grows in size, common sense shrinks, right? Sanity shrinks. People will do things in a mob they would never do as an individual, Because like all the rules break down in a mob. It just becomes crazy and frantic and angry. And that's what's going on. And so in that scene, Paul knows this is underway. He's not a part of the mob. He's not in the crowd. He's not at the theater. But he wants to address the problem because Paul's been here before. In fact, here's the crazy thing. Pretty much every city that you follow Paul through in the book of Acts, something like this happens. He's used to it. It's like in, in Derby, he was there and, uh, you know, preached the gospel and they stoned him and left him for dead. He's used to a mob that gets angry. And he's used to places like Philippi where he gets thrown in jail. And Corinth where he goes before a judge. Or Thessalonica where he's chased out of town. He's used to the fact that the gospel creates animosity when the gospel is effective. He's used to it, he knows it, and he's ready to take responsibility for that. So he's willing to go and face the mob. Which is a pretty gutsy thing. It says in verse 30, but when Paul wished to go among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. I mean, they know this is a different crew. These guys are going to tear him limb to limb. And it's not just the disciples, but the Asiarchs as well, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, the Asiarchs are an interesting group. They're kind of like the city council guys. Right? So, you know, their job is to, you know, like uh, swear in, you know, like artifacts and, and, you know, just memorials and things like that. They dedicate, you know, buildings in the city. They, they have a lot of sway. And what's cool about this, when I think about Paul, is that he had friends of among that group. And they must have felt pretty comfortable with Paul and his relationship to the city because if they thought Paul was some kind of, you know, guy that was trying to topple the, the very culture, there's no way they'd be friends with him. In fact, I think this says something about how Paul did his work. Paul did not roll into a city as this uh, sectarian. He didn't roll in and say, we're good, you're bad, we're right, you're wrong, we're holy, you're an abomination, white hat, black hat, heaven bound, hell bound, and there. Right? He didn't do that. Uh, Paul had this amazing capacity, like his Lord Jesus, to be a friend of sinners to work within the context of the culture, to be subversive, to make honest, earnest investment for the good of the city, and then inspire with the message of the cross. Now, the message of the cross is, hey, we are estranged from God. We are sinners. But it doesn't make some big diatribe about the culture. It makes a big diatribe about the condition of the person and how God can rescue. And so Paul was so good at this 
that even rulers of the city, leaders, are like, that guy's a good guy. And so they say, Paul, don't go into that. Don't go do that. Don't go to the theater. Now, in the theater, so some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Interesting, that word assembly, same word for the word church. Basically, you have the church of Jesus versus the church of Satan. Right? Satan has assembled his church to fight the church of Jesus in this location. But boy, it was in confusion. And it says most of them did not know why they had even come. I mean, isn't that like awesome too? Isn't that the way it works? Right? There's this group that gets mad. They start rushing down the road. More people jump in because, oh, those are flashing lights. I want to follow. You know, that's what they do. So there's this huge giant crowd in the theater. And then pretty soon dudes are standing around. Why are we here? I don't know. Artemis is great. What did he say? He said, tastes great. What? No, less filling. You know, and like, none of them know why they're even there. They're all arguing about different stuff. You know, the sad part about that statement, there's like people under 20 that go, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> tastes great. Let's fill. I, it, all right. It's tragic. Ah, America, where did you go? All right. So, right. So that's what's underway. Everybody's confused. So confused, they're not even sure at this point who to blame. Verse 33. So some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander was motioning with his hands, and he wanted to make a defense to the crowd. There's this weird little interjection here. Now, here's the problem. You've got all of these idol makers and idol worshipers with their many gods. And, and they don't know a lot about Christianity, but they know more about the Jews. And they know the Jews worship an invisible God and only one God which sounds very much like the Christians. And so all these people are getting really, really angry, really agitated, and they're just going to blame anybody that doesn't hold their point of view. So they're blaming the Jews at this point. But remember what we learned last week. The Jews, they hate Paul. They've run him out of the synagogue. They do not approve of him at all. And so now they get the guys that are Jewish here wanting to get up and say, whoa, 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 we're not with them either. Right? The idol worshippers are saying, oh, the Jews are just like them. They must be the same. And the Jews are saying, well, well we're not. You've got to get rid of Paul, but don't get rid of us. We're good guys. He's a bad guy. So he's trying to get that message out. But you know what? Nobody's listening. Verse 34 says, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they cried out with one voice, great is Artemis. Just drowning him out. Great is Artemis. Great is Artemis. Great is Artemis. Great is Artemis. And there he is. Let me talk. And they're like, great, great. Nobody wants to listen. Now, this must have really, really angered Alexander. So much so that you see years later, Paul writes to Timothy, now the pastor of Ephesus. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, oh, and Timothy, watch out for Alexander. He said, he brought me much harm in Ephesus. I mean, there's nothing worse than a bruised pride in a vengeful man. There's nothing worse. And so Alexander just makes it his vendetta to punish Paul for whatever's happened this day. Worked against his ministry for the last of his days. Right? So that becomes this other burden for Paul. So the crowd is more crazy. Everybody's crying Artemis. Nobody knows what's going on. But then the man shows up. The man, and in this case, the man is the town clerk. Now, you may not think town clerk, the man. You might be, isn't that like a $10 an hour job, the town clerk? Not here. The town clerk or the city clerk was the most powerful 
figure in all of Ephesus because he was the liaison between the city and the Roman Empire. So everybody can be freaking out and you can have some kind of law enforcement trying to pull it together. But when the man shows up, it shuts everything down. Right? Because all of a sudden, the full power of Rome is behind him. So it says, when the town clerk quieted the crowd, he said to them, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. This guy is uh, just a very competent politician. Because he rolls in and he says, all right, everybody's angry. How do I start this thing off? Well, here's the first thing. Everybody knows the relationship between the city and their goddess. It's a covenantal relationship. The city is for her. She is for the city. Nobody can challenge that truth. It's just a truth. Rome identifies with it. The culture identifies with it. So he says, hey, number one, there's no question there. Number two, he says, as to the origins of Artemis, we know she fell from the heavens. She descends from the skies, right? She's a meteorite, basically, that came down, carved her into this image. Nobody's questioning, he says, that she has divine origin. He doesn't know better. He's not a Christian. He just says, hey, nobody can test that. So if nobody can test the relationship between the goddess and the city, and nobody can test where this rock has come from, do yourself a favor right here, right now. Be calm. And carry on. That's all he says. Just go British motto. Simple. Be calm. Carry on. He says further, he says, you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of any gods. See, this is another great example of how things were were done by the early church. The early church didn't need to roll in and say, your goddess is lame, your temple's stupid, your system's broken, you guys are nuts. Right? They didn't do that. They didn't say, ah, did you know this temple's all going to come down one day and Jesus is going to thrash it with fire? They don't do that. They can't be charged with a blasphemy because here's what they don't do. They don't keep pointing out the darkness. They more often point to the light. They focus more on, here's how you get right with God, and a whole lot less on, here's what makes you wrong with God. The only time they talk about, again, being wrong with God is to the degree that the individual says, I need God in my life. They don't make a habit or a point out of mocking the culture of the lost. I suppose they could, but it wasn't their practice. They do things for the good of their city, for the good of the culture, praying that the gospel will penetrate subversively, powerfully, and from that people are changed and they let go of their ways. Which is really what's been going on in Ephesus anyway. And so even this Roman ruler can see that that's what these guys are up to. And so then he kind of turns to the mob, to the crowd, and points out their problem. He says, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. Right? He says, there are the proconsuls. So in other words, he says, uh, you should lawyer up. If you have an issue, you have a problem, you think somebody's wronged you, you think you're being swindled or defrauded in some way, get a lawyer, right? He says, let them bring charges against one another. He says, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. In other words, he says, you know what? If you guys want to keep going down this road, uh, forget the court. We're going to bring in this group the city council, and you're all busted. 
We're going to deal with all of you because you're going to be brought up in a whole different set of charges. You're going to be charged with rioting. Right? You're going to be found to be a subversive of the government. The Roman sword will visit you all. That's pretty motivating. Right? He says, for there is no cause that we can find to justify this commotion. There is no reason for you to do this. Pretty smart guy. It says in verse 41, and when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Crisis averted. Things simmered. And then in Acts chapter 20, verse 1, it says, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Now that verse right there, that is the last time Paul will gather with the Ephesian church. Next week we'll see where he comes one more time off-site and calls for the elders of Ephesus and meets with them. But this will be the last time Paul gathers with the Ephesian church. It's like this is his last word, his final encouragement, this last piece that he wants to impart to them. Now we're not told... What he encouraged them in. He doesn't say, and this is what he said. But if we take Paul's consistent message, his repeated themes throughout all of his epistles, the thing he always wants to leave people with, I think there's some real good pattern that we can close with here. To understand what he cares about. I believe the first thing Paul would emphasize, because he emphasizes it so often, as he would look at that church, started with 12 guys that thought they knew God but didn't, that that grew into then a group of hundreds or thousands, he would look at them and remind them, first of all, you are His church. You are Christ's church. You were chosen in Christ. You were atoned for through Christ. You have a mission in Christ, ransomed by Christ to do what Christ has called you to do. You are empowered by Him, strengthened by Him, fueled by Him, for Him and for His gospel. That is you, church. That is us, not just them. That is us and that is the message. And he would tell them, the city matters, the mission matters, the kingdom matters, people matter, the good news matters. It matters more than anything else because you're going to face all sorts of things in life, but those are the eternally enduring things. They matter for you are his church. He would also remind them, you have the spirit. You have the spirit, the spirit of hope, wisdom, transformation, testimony, unity, gifting, purpose, promise. You have the Holy Spirit. He lives in you and through you to do great and mighty things when you're filled with Him. You have His Spirit. He would also say, this is your Word. You have the Word given by the inspiration of God sharper than any two-edged sword, right? He says its perfection revives the soul. Its decrees are always trustworthy. Its commands are right and joyful. Its truths are clear and insightful for life. That is the Word. It opens hearts. It changes people. It rescues families. It gives direction. It liberates societies. It fulfills every sense of purpose God has laid forth in the soul of man. That is what it is. 
And it is to be suffered through and suffered with. It's to be taken in. Taken with. It's to be held up and submitted under. It is the Word. It never wavers. It never fails. It's always right. It always redeems. Paul knows with deep conviction it is light, life, truth, calling, purpose, and it is eternal. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank You for Your church. We thank You for Your Spirit. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the Apostle Paul who tirelessly worked, shared, trusted, prayed, was relentless, believing that You reward those who are faithful to You. And we as a church are indebted to that legacy. We are not distant from the church of Ephesus. We rely on it every single day as we read Acts or Ephesians or 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy or Revelation or countless other things that we wrestle with. You have left a legacy in the DNA of every church through them, through Him. And so, Jesus, we thank You for rising up men and women who are bold, unashamed, courageous, dependent, and basically are small so that You might be big. May we as Your people be faithful to that cause. In Your good and awesome name, Amen.